Well, let's go to the Lord and ask his help one more time as we turn now to his word. Let's pray. Oh God, even as we just sang, we ask that you would cause your spirit to work in us. Holy Spirit, living breath of God, would you breathe new life into our willing souls? Even now, would you come and renew our hearts and make them whole? Would you cause your word to come alive in us? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm sure that you've heard it said, it's what's on the inside that counts. I think most people almost kind of just sort of assume that that's true. It's what's on the inside that counts. What you are like on the inside in your innermost being, in your character, your your personality, that's what really defines you, not what's on the outside, right? Even though I think we all tend to assume there's truth to that, typically don't want to actually be on the receiving end of that counsel in the moment, do we? Because that usually means there's typically some kind of really obvious or pronounced deficiency on our outside when someone's trying to encourage us, hey, it's on the inside that counts. But if we all really believe that, I wonder why so many of us spend so much time and energy focusing on, working on, what's on the outside. In fact, let's try a little experiment here, shall we? Don't worry, like not out loud. You can just kind of do this in the quietness of your own mind. But I want to ask you to think about one thing about yourself. What is one thing about yourself that if you right now, you could just snap your fingers and change that one thing about you, what would it be? And I wonder how many of us are thinking about things that are on the outside. How many of us are convinced that if we could just change our outside, we'd be a lot happier? If we could just be a little taller? (laughs) Or leaner? Or fuller? If we could just... If we could adjust certain, certain features of our faces or our bodies or if we could be faster or, or stronger. I mean, are we really convinced that it's what's on the inside that counts? Maybe we are. I'm sure some of you right now are like, wait a minute, like I didn't think of something on the outside. Like when you said that, I was thinking of something on the inside. And the truth is that many of us, if we could just snap our fingers and change one thing about ourselves, for many of us, it would be something on the inside, something related to our character, our our personality, which doesn't mean that statement isn't true. It just makes it a lot more troubling. I wonder if it's possible that maybe we find false comfort in that phrase, it's what's on the inside that counts, because we assume that whatever our external deficiencies may be, our inner ones can't be quite as bad. But let me ask you this, what's harder, losing weight 
for never losing your patience with your spouse or your kids or your coworker. You see, it really is true that it's what's on the inside that counts. And because that's true, we should probably actually be far more concerned and even troubled by what we find there. It's also what makes Jesus' words in this beatitude that we're looking at this morning seem so, so strange, but also ultimately so, so compelling. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you've been with us so far in this series throughout the, these, these beatitudes, and you know what Jesus is doing here, the the picture that Jesus is painting here in these Beatitudes is one of, of human flourishing. He's creating a, a vision of what he is describing as the blessed life, what we've been calling the good life. This is what Jesus is saying is, is actually what is essential for us to be truly, genuinely, deep down happy. This is the, the happy life. And if you've been here throughout this series, you know that typically it's right about now in the sermon that we've been doing this, this kind of paraphrase of the Beatitudes. This sort of purposely, overly verbose way of, of restating the Beatitudes so that we can all be sure that we understand what Jesus is saying. But I'm not going to do that here this morning. I'm going to hold that off till the end because I think we need to sort of build this one piece at a time. There's something a little bit different going on here in this beatitude. Maybe you've sensed that. There's a bit of a, a shift that started last week in these beatitudes. It went from what we were lacking, being poor in spirit and mourning over our sin and hungering and thirsting for righteousness by implication that we did not have. And all of a sudden there's this, this shift to being merciful, something that we do actually have. And now being pure in heart there's something a little bit different going on here. And it all has to do with this idea of what's on the inside. What this beatitude calls the heart. That's not speaking about our emotions or our emotional life. No, the heart is the, in the scriptures anyway, the heart is the, the very center of our inner being. It's the place where our, our will resides. It's the place where all of our, our desires and drives reside. It is the the essence of our inner being. And here in this beatitude, there are four things about that heart, four things about our inner being that we need to know if we ever want to truly be happy. And please hear me at the outset. Jesus is talking to us about our happiness. This is not just some some Bible studies so we can know how the word heart is being used in the Bible. Jesus is actually trying to tell us how to live the good life. And it all has to do with the heart. Four things about the heart. First, a pure heart, what Jesus is referring to here. A pure heart is one that is whole and undivided. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Listen, the reason why I want to just pause here at the outset is because when you and I, at least for, for many of us anyway, when we hear that word pure, that's another one of those words that can sometime, sometimes trip us up, kind of like that word righteousness in a few beatitudes ago. When we hear that word purity, 
especially if you kind of grew up around church settings, we tend to think of something very, very specific. We almost always tend to assume that purity refers to sexual purity. But listen, that is not the essence of what Jesus means here when he's talking about being pure in heart. What Jesus is referring to is something much more much more general, but not just general, but even, even bigger. It's a much larger category than that. He's talking about a heart that is, that is not undivided, or sorry, a heart that is undivided. It's not torn in different competing directions. It doesn't have desires that are actually competing against one another that are residing in the human heart. Friends, this is one of the chief themes that's going to be coming up again and again and again all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus is getting at is what it means to be a whole person, a whole human being before God. And it begins right here with this idea of a pure heart, a heart that is not torn and competing against different desires. Now, obviously, sexual impurity can be one particular manifestation of a divided heart, but there can be many, many different manifestations of a divided heart. But the whole point is that we're not supposed to be thinking immediately of external behaviors in this because the whole point of what Jesus is doing is getting at the very inner sense of our being. It's getting at the sense of of what we most consistently and strongly desire in the essence of our innermost being. And Jesus is not just saying, hey, you need to have unified desires, whatever those desires are, whatever you want them to be. He's not just saying, hey, find something. You do you. He's very specifically describing a heart that is that is unified, that is whole, that is undivided in its posture towards God. We see this all over the scriptures. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. The first and sort of primary aspect of our being with which we are to love the Lord our God. We see it all over the place. One of the greatest examples of this is Psalm 86. This beautiful prayer that says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. The psalmist is is recognizing that there is this propensity in us to have our, our heart divided and torn in different directions. He's coming before God and saying, unite my heart. Break down the the." dividing walls that are in my heart and unite it so that it beats with one unified ordering purpose towards you. Unite my heart to fear your name. And then he responds by saying, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. And I will glorify your name forever. We shouldn't be surprised to find Jesus linking this purity of heart, this this singularity of heart with our happiness. And having your heart split between competing desires is just a miserable way to live. It's like multitasking at the level of our souls. I mean, for a while, 
I think this goes back maybe just a few years, for a while, all the, all the literature out there about productivity, it was all focused on, on multitasking, how to be a great multitasker, how to do multiple things at one time so that you can be productive in the business world or at home or whatever your particular sphere of, of life is, how to be multitasking to get more done. And in the aftermath of all that, what we're now discovering and learning is that the whole thing is a myth. Multitasking, like real, actual multitasking, doesn't even really exist. All you're doing is just getting better at switching between going to one thing to another to another really quick. And every time you have to shift gears, it's like, it's like breaking your, your focus. And it actually, in the end, ends up driving down your productivity and your focus, which is now why all the literature is not about multitasking. All the literature now is how to shut everything else off. It's like this new discipline that we have to learn, how to shut everything else off and learn how to singularly focus. Friends, Jesus is talking about the exact same thing at the level of our heart. Listen, here, I, I wonder, or I, I realize you might be wondering, like, well, what does this actually, like, look like in, in practical life? Like, someone who just, like, actually has to get up and live a 24-hour day whose heart is, is undivided towards God. Like, what does that mean? Like, you can basically just, like, wake up, read your Bible, pray, go to church, and, like, you can only ever listen to Christian music. That's not what I'm talking about. In fact, that might actually be dangerous to you actually experiencing this thing of purity in heart because, again, it's focused almost entirely on external behaviors and not what's going on here. The person who has a, a truly pure heart, a unified, undivided heart towards God, it's not that you don't do any other thing that's not labeled as a, a Christian activity. It's just that Everything you do, you look at every single part of your life, you order the entirety of your life through the lens of seeing God first in everything. Which is why Jesus links this heart purity with our seeing God. This is the second thing that we need to see about the heart this morning. Number two, only those with a pure heart can see God. And that's just built right into what Jesus is saying. Blessed are the pure in heart for they, implication being they and they alone shall see God. They shall see God. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that to see God, to actually see God is the whole purpose of all religion, to draw near to God, to, to behold him, to, to be able to stand before him in his presence, to, to catch a glimpse of him with our own eyes. That is the essence of, of everything that, that this is all about. And what Jesus is saying is that only those who are pure in heart will, will get to experience but listen, this is not the first time. I mean, Jesus is, is not the first to establish this, this relationship between pure hearts and seeing God. In fact, Jesus actually seems to have Psalm 24 in his mind here in this beatitude. Listen to what Psalm 24 has to say. Beginning in verse 3, the psalmist asks the question, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? 
he who has clean hands and a pure heart. The picture is of a, of a worshiper is traveling up to Jerusalem to, to approach the temple. The temple is the place where God, God's presence dwelled and only those with clean hands and pure hearts were supposed to approach. But even then there was somewhat of an imperfection of their approach, not even just in themselves, but even in, in what they could see. They could only get so close. They couldn't go all the way in to the place where God's presence actually dwelled. They could only go to the, the outside holy place. But this same psalm envisions an even better look at God. The same psalm envisions God himself coming down and entering into this holy city to dwell with his people for all eyes to see. He says in verse 9, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And friends, I don't think it is even remotely by accident that Jesus is alluding to this psalm about pure hearts and the coming of the king of glory. Even here as he begins his own earthly preaching ministry, proclaiming that the kingdom of God, the very rule and reign of God has now arrived in his very own coming. But there's also this logical relationship that I want us to see here. There's this surprising, surprisingly logical relationship between purity of heart and seeing this king in all his glory. And we see it in some of the other Beatitudes as well. Like last week, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Like the only ones who actually care about receiving mercy are the ones who know that they need mercy. And the ones who know they need mercy are the only ones who are actually ever going to be able to show mercy. There's this logical, even surprising, logical relationship that we find right here. Friends, the only ones who actually get to see God, to, to behold him, to be in his presence. Friends, which is the very thing that we were actually created for. The only ones who can do that are those whose hearts are unified and whole and directed towards him and that's just it. It's only the undivided heart that really cares more about being able to see God than anything else. And the heart that's divided will never get to see God, but that's the heart that probably at the end of the day really just doesn't care. You see, it is what's on the inside that counts. But again, that's the whole problem here, isn't it? As someone somewhere has said, I paraphrase, there's one part of me that, that kind of wants to know God, but there's this whole other part of me that just wants something else. And who of us actually has pure heart. Listen, Jesus knows this. 
Jesus knows this. And he's saying this on purpose. Jesus knows what it says in Jeremiah 17. I mean, listen to this diagnosis about what every one of our human hearts is actually like. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Like, put that on a coffee mug. You probably won't come across that phrase when you unwrap one of those little pieces of Dove chocolate. Some of you know what I mean, those little Dove chocolates, you know, I like the dark ones. And you open them up and there's those little sayings on the inside. I've got a stack of them in my office. They always say things like, just follow your heart. You know, live with no regrets. Just look inside you, find out who you are, follow that person, and everything will work out. You are beautiful, this is like literally, like, you are beautiful on the inside, exactly how you are. I want to ask, like, how do they know that? Like, how do they know who's unwrapping these chocolates and eating that? Like, I think that they should just start putting this in here. Like, imagine, like, unwrapping your chocolate, and it's like, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Oh. Like some of you are like, why are you picking on the people who are just giving us chocolate? I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to pick on them. And I'm not even saying that they're, that they're like unintelligent for saying these things. In fact, they're not. They're smart. They just know this is how people think today. This is what people just want to hear. That's part of the whole problem. It's that our hearts are divided and they're so deceitful that they can trick us into thinking that they're not divided and that the very thing that we need to do in order to be happy is to listen to our hearts. And what Jesus is saying is, no way, not at all. In fact, the only way you'll ever be happy is if you come to him so he can fix it. And friends, that brings us to the very heart of this Beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Right in the, in the middle of this whole thing, there's like this, this invisible fulcrum. There's like this, this unseen hinge that this entire thing, this entire Beatitude, the entirety of the Christian life hinges upon this, turns upon this. It's the fourth thing that you need to know about the human heart. And that's this, only God can give you a clean heart. Only God can give you a pure heart. And that is the very thing he longs to do. Once again, we see that in so many places in the Old Testament scriptures, places that I think Jesus, again, has in his mind, even as he is speaking to us about purity of heart. I mean, even in Jeremiah, we hear this promise that God is going to take the essence of his law. He's going to take the essence of what he wants from his people, and he's going he's to write it on our hearts. But there's an even more powerful image. I mean, that is a powerful image by itself. I mean, just picture God with your heart, heart in his hands. He's tattooing his own desires, permanently engraving them on your heart. But there is an even more powerful picture 
It's not just that we need them to be written on our hearts. We actually need to be given entirely new hearts in the first place. This is what it says in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. This is, this is God speaking to his people, giving them this promise. He says, and I will give you a new heart. This is the God who, who can see everything about us. And he can see inside the deepest recesses of our beings and he knows what's there he knows how impure our hearts are how divided against themselves ourselves they are and he speaks to us and says i will give you a new heart and a new spirit i will put within you i will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and i will give you a heart of flesh a a soft heart that actually beats with the kind of life that God wants to see in us. Friends, this is the very thing that Jesus came to do. Listen, I think so often, rightly, so often, rightly, we emphasize that Jesus came and lived this life that we couldn't live, which he did. We rightly emphasize the fact that Jesus was the only person with a completely pure heart that was totally, undividedly devoted towards God in every single way. And he laid down his life in order to secure our forgiveness. He laid down his life. He went to the cross as a way of paying for our sins to, to remove the legal record of debt that we had and in his death, he wipes it completely clean. And again, we are right to emphasize that. That is important and central. We can never forget that. But we also need to remember that not only is Jesus the one who did that, but that Jesus is the one that we need to come to to receive the benefits of that. He is the one that we need to come to. He laid down his life, but God raised him from the dead. He ascended to heaven where he rules and reigns and lives now and intercedes for us. And he actually does things. He works in the lives and in the hearts of those who love him and trust him. we got to go to him. Listen, when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, he knows nobody has a, has, a, has, a, has a pure heart. And if there was no solution to that, these words would just be absolutely cruel. But as it is, there is a solution. Jesus is not just calling us to go and, and change our hearts. He's calling us to come to himself as the great physician. This is not like, this is not like going to a physician and the physician says to you, hey, listen, you know, your cholesterol is a little high, so you should think about some lifestyle changes. No, this is like seeing a physician who says, we need to get you on the operating table immediately because you're dead. There's no pulse. There is no life in you. This is immediate heart transplant. And as such, we need to remember that this, this might hurt a little or a lot. Again, I want to be clear, I'm speaking figuratively, right? Just like this is not about the organ in our chest that pumps life throughout our body, although what a vivid illustration of why this is the center of our being. I'm not talking about physical pain. I'm talking about the, the reality that our hearts are divided and deceitful as they are. We don't want to give up and relinquish control. 
those deceitful hearts don't want to be replaced, and so it might hurt. But we've got to come to him anyway, because he's the only one who can do it. Reminds me of this great scene in one of the chronicles of Narnia, the, the voyage of the dawn treader. Listen, don't just stick to the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. You've got to read the whole series. And you've got to read them in the right order. The order that they were written in. Book number three is about the, the voyage of the ship, the dawn treader, as it sails the seas of Narnia, going to, to these lost islands. And Lucy and Edmund, they come back to Narnia now for the second time. But their cousin Eustace gets brought along this time. If you've ever read the story, you know Eustace is just absolutely intolerable. He constantly complains. He blames everything on everybody else. He hates Narnia. He has no interest in Aslan. I mean, quite frankly, he's beastly. Quite frankly, he's, I mean, he's like people that we know. And so on one of these islands... On the outside, he turns into what he is on the inside. He turns into, into a dragon full of scales. And he tries to, he tries to remove his own, his own dragon scales. He, he rips them off. And every time he rips them off, they just grow right back. And he tries to claw them off. He sheds his own dragon skin only to, to look at his reflection and see that the scales just keep coming back again. And then Aslan comes and Aslan says, no, no, no. He says, you must let me do it. Later, Eustace retells the story, and he says, I was afraid of his claws. I was afraid of his claws, but I tell you, I was pretty nearly desperate. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The first tear he made was so deep, he says, I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when Aslan, with his claws, rips the scales from Eustace, he finally looks at his reflection in the water and sees a boy again. And I love how careful C.S. Lewis is here. I love how careful. He says, it would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he says, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days where he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. Friends, the same is true of us. If you have turned to Christ in faith, if you have asked him to do this work in you, and you are trusting in him and trusting in his hands to do this work in you, you can be confident that he has begun this work. And listen, if you haven't, if you haven't done that, do that now. Do that even right now. In your heart, let your prayer go up before the throne of God where Christ himself is seated and say, help me, 
Change me. Take out this heart of stone and give me a pure heart that beats with undivided love and affection towards you. And he will. And if, he's, if he has already done that, we need to remember and maybe even be patient because this is an ongoing work. And as it is, it might involve, no, it will involve ongoing discomfort. This past week I heard another pastor say something that I just found to be so profoundly helpful. We need to know the difference between conviction and condemnation. Right? And sometimes we hear about this stuff. We hear about, about the need to have a pure heart before God and there's this, there's this thing that just comes upon us. Even if you even if you have already begun to experience this work of Christ. We hear about this and there's this thing that we feel inside because we know that we are not completely, finally, fully, perfect in every single way. And so we just kind of go, oh no. Listen. You need to be able to distinguish between condemnation and conviction. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation whatsoever, period. Full stop. Final. But if you are in Christ, you better believe that there will be ongoing conviction as he continues to work in your heart. In fact, maybe even every single week when you walk in here, there may be ongoing conviction. Don't be afraid of that. Don't resist that. In fact, that very feeling itself may actually be the feeling of Christ once again taking up your heart in his hands and recasting it and remolding it further. So don't resist it. Embrace it. Ask him for it. Seek after it. And all the while that you do, remember this promise. This is the last thing I want to say about the human heart. Number four, those who have been given new hearts will see God. It's not just that only those who have pure hearts can. Only God can give you a pure heart. And if you come to Christ, he will. And if he does, you absolutely will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Listen, friends, if you've come to Christ and asked him to do this work in you, then that means already, even now, presently, already, right now, here and now, even in this moment, there is already a sense in which you can see God. You can actually see God right now with a new heart in a way that, that nobody else can. In fact, did you know that your hearts have eyes. Once again, we're not speaking literally here. I'm still in this like figurative realm. That's why Paul prays prayers like this 
in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to people who have already begun to experience this painful yet life-giving, eye-opening work of Christ. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, that's Christ, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Having the eyes of your hearts, the the seeing ability of your hearts opened up that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That means right now, if you are in Christ, you can see God and the riches and the glory that come from the gospel in a way that nobody else can. And this is a, listen, this is not some kind of a cop-out. This is a real, legitimate way of actually seeing, of really seeing God. Remember, it's what's on the inside that counts. It's what's on the inside that counts. In fact, so the most important way, most immediately of our being able to see him is being able to see him at the level of the, the innermost sense of self in our hearts. And so we should strive and seek and pray to have increased clarity of vision in our hearts so that we can see him more fully now. So that we can see him more fully now as he really is. So that we can see him more frequently. So that we can see him more consistently so that we can see him more quickly, especially when we're feeling weak and tempted to doubt and tempted toward discouragement. And no wonder why Jesus said that we can live the good life now. But that's not the only way of seeing that Jesus has in mind here. Friends, there is a day coming when we will truly see, and I don't just mean figuratively. There is a day coming when we will literally see him face to face. And for those who have trusted in him, for those who have come to see him now with the eyes of their hearts on that day, on that day we will behold him with our hearts and our eyes that have been made completely and fully and finally new and perfect and total and complete in every single way. There will be absolutely no tinge of impurity or division in our hearts on that day in any single way. In fact, when he comes, when he returns on that day, our hearts will not just be made pure and whole. They will be made to be exactly like his. And that is the promise that we have. Listen to the way John says it in one of his letters. He says, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, like Christ. We shall be like him, like Christ, because we shall see him. We shall see 
Christ as he is. And get this. Everyone who thus hopes, meaning everyone who, who in this particular way hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. Turns out it really is true that it's what's on the inside that counts. Our happiness depends on it. It's just that he's the only one who can put it there. What Jesus is saying here is happy is the heart that has been made whole in the hands of God and will be before him face to face forever. In other words, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's pray. Lord, even as it says in your word, we ask that you would teach us your way, O oh Lord, that we may walk in your truth. Unite our hearts to fear your name. We give thanks to you, O oh Lord, our God, with our whole heart. And we will glorify your name forever.